We've been walking through um, 1 John. It's the letter that the Apostle John wrote near the end of his life to believers um, at the end of the first century. He's the last living apostle, and he's writing to the second and the third generation of the church, and he's writing because he wants to encourage them. He wants them um, to be assured as believers um, of their, of their position in Jesus, of their eternal life that is to come. And so he's, he's wanting to encourage them, and he's also helping them out because they've got some false teachers that have come in and are trying to influence them and trying to shake their faith and trying to draw them away. And so John's writing to them saying, hey, this is what faith in Jesus is, and this is what it means to believe in him. And you can have courage in this, you can have confidence in this, and I want you to be encouraged. And so that's what the the theme of, of what John has been writing to them. And in many ways, the language is very, very simple. I mean, it, it's easy to read, just like John's gospel. At the same time, the, the things that John writes about, this is some of the deepest water in all of the New Testament. And, and it, it's, it's, it's how folks age, it's how they mature. Your words can become simpler and yet the topics that you speak about become that much deeper. The, the depth of this letter in many ways reflects this maturity, this seasoned life that John has lived. He's walked with Jesus. He walked with Jesus while Jesus was here. He's walked with Jesus since Jesus ascended. And so we get this sneak peek into, we, we get this encouragement from a man who has walked with Jesus and loved Jesus for all the years of his life. And so, I want us to hear it that way this morning. Um, because, in fact, this morning, as I talk about the deep waters of the New Testament, this morning, some of those deep waters, it, it, um, it's a place where a lot of believers come to as you're reading um, in John's letter, and a place where a lot of believers come to, we, we, we all come to it and we find ourselves scratching our head, what in the world could John be talking about here? If he's writing to encourage me, if he's writing so, so that I'll have confidence in my salvation and the eternal life to come, it sure doesn't sound very confidence-inspiring when we listen to his words. And so I want to I want to read this passage that we're going to be in this morning, and then I want to pray to God that he would help us to hear these words rightly, uh, and, and then we want to walk through them the best that we can, okay? So that's the plan. I'm going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 2, right, right at the very end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and then we'll go into the first 10 verses of chapter 3. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and this is how this section begins. And now, little children, abide in him. This is Jesus. Abide in Jesus. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called 
children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And he is right as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would help us with these words this morning. Even in, in just reading them aloud and reading them this morning in community. And as this word goes out in this room, and Father, this word goes out to those that are online, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to understand its meaning, that, that the meaning of your word would be encouraging to us. Father, the meaning of your word would, would be convicting to us. Father, the meaning of your word would draw us to your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for all the ways in which we might be distracted this morning. Would you, would you help us to, to hear you, to see what you have for us? Father, would you protect my words and everything that doesn't accord with your word? Would it, would it burn up and be forgotten? And we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, well, I want to look at it in two different halves. I want to look at chapter 2, verse 28, and I want to go to, to um, chapter 3, verse 3. And then I want to look at the other half, uh, beginning chapter 3, verse 4 to to verse 10. So let's look at the first half. And really this first half, is what he's doing is he's, he's speaking to the believer about the confidence that you can have at the appearing of Christ. So, so notice what he does. There in verse 28, you see he mentions, um, so that when he appears, and then if you go down to chapter 3, verse 2, you'll see that phrase again. It says, so, that, so you'll know, but we know that when he appears. And so he's talking about the appearing of Christ. He's talking about the second coming 
of Christ. And, and this is sort of the, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Jesus spoke of his return to his disciples in all of the Gospels. James and Peter and John and Paul and the, and the writer of Hebrews um, wrote to believers and spoke about the return of Jesus, the, the return of Jesus to comfort them and to encourage them and to inspire them and, and to warn them. And, and while you, you take all those things that are said about the second coming of Jesus, there are some of the details that were given that, that are clear and some of the details that are less than clear. Some things that are clear you, you can find from uh, what Paul writes in Thessalonians. Um, Jesus will descend from heaven. There will be a shout. There will be a, a trumpet. The, the dead in Christ will rise. There will be the resurrection. Those that are alive at the time of the return of Jesus, they'll be transformed. will be caught up with him. We're given enough to know, though, that we don't know everything. But we are given enough so that we might live expectantly. See, the design, the reason that Jesus told us he was coming back, the reason that every writer in the New Testament speaks about Jesus coming back, is because it's, it's supposed to be something that we as believers, we, we, we dwell on from time to time. We, we linger on. We, we stir our affections. We, we kindle the hope and the anticipation and the expectation of Jesus' return. See, one of the things we know, and, and we know this from almost every book in the New Testament and from the Psalms and the, and the prophets, is that with the coming of Jesus... There's also the coming of judgment. Luke, he records in Acts chapter 17, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, the New Testament speaks of a couple of different judgments, and sometimes we can get confused. There's the great white throne judgment, and that's the, uh, that's the scary judgment. That's the judgment at the end. That's in Revelation chapter 20, and all the dead will uh, come before Christ and, or come before God. And, and that's when the, the final judgment happens, and, and those that have um, uh, rebelled against God, those that haven't received his gift of Jesus, those will be eternally condemned it's the great white throne judgment now one of the things we know in the new testament is as believers we don't have to fear the great white throne judgment we don't have to fear that because we will not be condemned our judgment that we face as believers is not a judgment of condemnation in fact, Paul says as much in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But there is a judgment nonetheless. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes 
about that. We will. Um, it, it's not. A, we'll come before him. Um, it's the judgment of believers. Every believer will come before Jesus. It's not a judgment as to whether you are saved. Great news is, if you find yourself at the judgment seat of Christ, you made it. It's the coming before Jesus, and it's giving an account of the faithfulness of your life. Your life in Christ, and and what is astonishing to me is that at that judgment seat, the the appearing before Christ, there will be rewards that are given, there will be crowns that are given. Your, Your faithfulness will be rewarded. Your your works, your good works done in the power of the Spirit will be rewarded. And what is amazing to me is that we'll receive these uh, rewards, we'll receive these crowns, and I I think every one of us at the judgment seat of Christ will have this strange um, experience of I'm being rewarded for something ultimately I know I didn't do. The Spirit of God in me did it. I'm being rewarded for the work and the power of the Spirit in me. I also give an account for the, for the faithlessness in our life. And the times that the Spirit does prompt us and we, and we don't follow His lead. And it doesn't mean there won't be any tears. It just the promise in Revelation chapter 21 is that that he'll wipe away every tear. And so there is a a judgment that is to come. And and so what John's doing is he's writing these believers, the return of Christ, the the coming of Jesus, it's this motivation of the command that John gives there in verse 28 so that we would abide in him. We're to abide in the Son and in the in the Father, he, he we, we looked at that last week. Well, we let God's word abide in us um, as we abide in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. The the the, the Spirit is our teacher, who we find abides in us. What this means is that we. John's been saying up to this point, we'd be people who walk in the light. We keep God's word. We hold fast to the truths of faith. We, we avoid the deception of false teachers. and um, We live lives that are increasingly conforming to the life of Jesus. And, and it's only something that we can do as we rely on the power of the Spirit. And this abiding, it's this, it's not a one one-time thing, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing activity of our life. Now, I want you to see this because what what John does is he he does something that's absolutely remarkable. The result of abiding in Christ is that we will anticipate his return with confidence. Not being put to shame, he says, by his appearance. 
So in some ways, by, by abiding now, we'll have confidence then. And then, and then the opposite is true. We fail to abide. We, we don't nurture our fellowship with him. We don't, you know, we're not, we're not faithful to, con, to confess our sins. We find ourselves, one, without confidence of his return, finding that maybe even as believers we would fear his return. We would shrink back in a, in a shame when he appears. And, and so two things John's been saying here. He, he's saying by way of encouragement to the believers, uh, you know, he, he wants all of this to come together, this motivation, this encouragement to walk in the light and to live in fellowship and to abide. Because listen, the world we live in, the world John lived in, it was, it was wonky. It was, it felt weird. There were so many messages around and so many things that were competing for affection. And today there's so many things competing for our affection. It is easy to lose sight of the fact that there is eternity coming for us. You see, internally what's happening is, and what's he's, what he said is that if you're saved, you're, you're justified, you're declared righteous, you're restored in your relationship with God, you're redeemed, you're anointed by the Spirit, which means the Spirit of God indwells you and empowers you and seals you. And because of that, you're being transformed. Not only are you not only are you being changed, but you, you're desiring to be being changed. And then externally, what, what's, what he's talking about is that since Jesus is coming back and there's an eternity to come and that you'll give an account for your life in, in Christ. So these two things working. There's the Spirit of God working in you. There's the reality of Jesus coming back, this expectation to work on you. And then verse three, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1, he, he gives us a context. Look at what he says again. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, John's reminding these believers these friends, those that he loves, of the context that all of this happens in. See, when Jesus comes back and you appear before the great, you know, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ and you give an account for your life and, and, you, and you, you long for that so that you're not ashamed of that, all of those things, what he's making sure we know is, listen, the context of this is a family relationship. The context of this is actually the most Intimate of family relationship. He's not an uncle coming for a nephew. He's a, he's a father. You're his child. This isn't an impersonal performance evaluation that you might receive on your job and then it goes in your file. It's family. It's personal. It's intimate. This loving relationship of a parent and a 
child. And this is why the world doesn't know us. The world doesn't know him. The world rejected him. He came into the world. He was the light in the world, but the world loved the darkness more than they loved the light. See, what the world claims to know about God from a distance and from rebellion is vastly different than what a child knows about God as their loving father. See, the world doesn't know him, but we know him. Because we know him and we're his children, of course we'll find ourselves out of sync with the world. It's a great time to ask. I mean, so, are you out of sync with the world? Are there places you can point to in your life and you know what? I'm out of sync here. I, there are things about my life or things that I think or, or affections that I have that are, that, that are out of sync with all of the things that bombard me on a day-to-day basis, all the things that compete for my affection, it's, it's, it's good to know that you're out of sync with the world. Now, in, in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, he, he talks about when he appears, and then look at verse 3. It says, and everyone who thus hopes, and what they're hoping your, your hope is set on, your, your hope is in, your expectation is in, your longing is in, the return of Jesus. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, John brings all this together, the abiding, the appearing, the relationship. When he appears in verse 2, what he says is, we will be like him. When we see him, John says, We shall be like him. Seeing him will be transformative. We'll see Jesus. He says in 2 Thessalonians, and we'll marvel and we'll be like him. We'll be be changed. What we'll be changed into? What we'll be changed into what we are, what we will be at His appearing. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When we see Him, will be changed, will be glorified. But here's what's amazing. That's not all that John is saying. What he's saying is that in the meantime, the hoping to see Jesus, the longing to see Jesus, the expecting and the watching and waiting and the preparing that is purifying. To see what the believer can expect to experience by 
expecting his return and yearning and longing to see him face to face is to be changed from the inside out. It's, it's sanctification. By setting our hearts and minds on his imminent and certain return, purification occurs in us. It cleanses us from things that otherwise would drag us down. Isn't, isn't that a remarkable thought? That as you long to see Jesus in his return, that is purifying for you. It's amazing. It's, it's astounding to me. I'll tell you, I think for us, I, I think it must happen. I, I've talked to folks that are, have, have walked with the Lord longer, find themselves at a later stage of maturity and a later stage of life. And I find that the later you get in life, really the, the, the more clear that longing becomes. And, and, and if you were a believer as a child, I don't know if you were, if you're a believer as a child, you, you have this childlike faith, you, 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 which is beautiful. And it's easy to believe it. it it's, it's this, I think children who are believers long for, they, they have the imagination and the affection to long for the return of Christ. I remember being a little boy and you'd see an amazing sunset or you'd see the clouds and I've never seen clouds like that before. Maybe that, maybe this is it. You know? You feel that excitement and you feel that hope and you, and somewhere along the way, you know, we grow up Maybe high school does it, middle school. Kind of just rips all that hope out of you. It takes a long time sometimes to get that back, that imagination, that longing, that, that daydreaming by faith in the return of How long has it been since you found a quiet moment and hoped for Jesus' return. Try to imagine it. See, in, in that, what John says, that is purifying. Well, brings us to the next half of this section. He, he's going to go from this, hey, um, Jesus is going to return um, we should long for that, and we should long for it in a way that purifies us so that when he does return, we won't be ashamed. We'll, we're, we're prepared. Now he's going to talk to us. He's going to encourage us not to live in sin in the meantime. Spend our time. We want to hope. We want to, we, we want to uh, long for the return of Jesus. We don't. What we don't want to do is we don't want to live in sin because he says in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And he appeared 
the first time in order to take away sins. And the reason he could do it is because there was no sin in him. Now, I want you to just see this real quick. Let's see if I can make this clear. If you've got your Bibles open, um, either a real Bible or a, a digital Bible, either one, you, you'll be able to see this. But, but look at how this goes. It, the second half really is a, um, it says a thing in verses 4 through 7, and then it says that thing again a little differently in 8 through 10. In, in um, this make a practice of sinning, you, you find that in verse 4, you find that in verse 8. They practice, if, you, if you're practicing sin, you're practicing what's called lawlessness in verse 4. That's what he says. And this practice of sinning, those that practice sinning, they're of the devil in verse 8. And then there's the theme, um, verse 4, the nature of sin is lawlessness. Verse 8, the origin of sin is the devil. And then you see verse 5 and verse 8, it's talking about the reason for, for Christ appearing. He, verse 5, appeared in order to take away sin. Verse 8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And, and then the conclusion of the section is similar as well. In verse 6, no one abides in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, those are two really hard verses, by the way. We're going to talk about them in a minute. And then the ending statement is similar as well. This is how you can test it. Verse 7, those who practice right, righteousness are righteous. Verse 10, those who do not practice righteousness nor demonstrate love for a brother are from God. Now, Let's see if I can make some sense of this. Are, are you okay? Because these are really, it's a really difficult section, and I, and I want to I unpack it for a minute, all right? Notice in verse 4, I, I think this is part of the key. Sin is lawlessness. Do you see that? Now, Paul will talk about, in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians, a man of lawlessness. Let no one deceive you, Paul says, in any way. For that day will come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul is talking about there the Antichrist, John has, been talked, has talked about the Antichrist. There's the Antichrist, and then there's Antichrists. Those that want to drag you away, or those uh, from, from Christ being the, the, the center of your life, Christ being the authority of your life. Those who have denied Christ as the authority of their life. See, lawlessness, it's this rebellious alignment with the devil. It is the denial of Jesus being the Son of God. It, it's, it's, not, it's more than just breaking God's law. It's, it's, it's being blatantly opposed to him. 
This is sin of those who are in rebellion. I think what he's talking about is the lost person who has no power of the Spirit to wage war against the flesh, no recourse for forgiveness from Jesus. Their life is sin. See, this is the contrast of the person in verses 28 and 29. Now, no no one abiding, uh, uh, verse 6, and no one born of God, verse 9, makes a practice of sinning. Now, let's be clear. So a lot of Christians read this, and sometimes people will send me emails or they'll make an appointment, and this is a verse that we'll talk about. No one born of God, verse 9 seems particularly difficult. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's a terrifying statement. But here's what we know it can't mean. It can't mean that Christians don't sin. Because 1 John 1.8, he has already said, if you say you're without sin, you know what you are? A sinner, I mean a liar. And liars are sinners. So he knows that you have sin. It is not the impossibility of sin he's talking about. He's talking about the incompatibility of sin in a believer's life. It's absolutely, completely incompatible with someone who is born of God. It's not that it's impossible, but oh, it is incompatible. You see, the doctrine of sin, it, it, it goes like this. It, here's a few verses from Romans that help us. Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam sinned. Genesis 3, and in a way, we were in Adam, so to speak. And we all sinned. And sin brought death, and death has come to us all. Death is the penalty of sin. There's the dominion of sin. There's the slavery of sin. There's the punishment of sin. And Christ dies for us. Christ dies for the sin. He he came... He came in order to defeat sin. He came because of sin, to take away sins. For while we were still weak, while we were without hope, while we were without a Savior, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Second Corinthians 5.21, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's still, listen, there's still the presence of sin in the life of the believer. You, you can still know the, the power of sin on your flesh and your 
life. Absolutely. In fact, if you doubt that, just go to Romans chapter 7. Begin reading in verse 15. And Paul shares his own struggle. The things I want to do, I don't do those things. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. What a wretched man that I am. But the reality is, if you're a believer, while there's the presence of sin, while the power of sin wages on your, against your flesh, the reality is you're no longer compatible with sin. You're incompatible with sin. Sin doesn't fit. It's out of place. It's not impossible, but it's incongruent. Now, here's the truth about sin. Let's be honest for a second. Sin is satanic. It is from Satan. It doesn't mean that when a Christian sins, you suddenly lose your place as a child of God and take up your place as the child of the devil. That's not what he means. It does mean this. Those are who are in rebellion against God, who have set up a kingdom against God. The anti-Christs. They're children of the devil. And listen, children of the devil can look all kinds of ways. In John 8, 44, Jesus says to the religious leaders in the midst of healing a blind man, and they were all upset about that, Jesus looks at them and says, you, you, your righteousness, your morality, your morality is your rebellion against God. You've set up your own kingdom of morality instead of humbling yourself as sinners before God. And you know what Jesus calls the religious leaders in, in, in John 8, 44? He calls them children of Satan. They didn't take that very well. John doesn't want to cast doubt in the mind of the believer. But those who are pretending, you pretending to be saved, um, pretending that Christianity is just about going through some motions or coming to church or... And, and you know, listen, you, you haven't experienced Christ. You haven't humbled your life before Him. You trying to add all of these things, but you, you... Your kingdom is still your kingdom, and it is set up in rebellion against God. John wants to say, look, sin, the sin you have in your life, your sin is serious, and Jesus is coming back. Bow your knee before Him now. Humble yourself. And he's also saying to those that, hey, you're a believer, but maybe you're unfaithful. Maybe you haven't walked in fellowship with the Lord in a long time. John said, listen, examine your life. You know why? Sin is serious. And Jesus is coming back. We place our trust in Him. We, we become children of God. The righteousness, the perfection of Jesus, it enables us to be declared righteous, to be clothed with, with all that He is. 
and it also begins to, to work in us. The result is that believers, all day, every day, there's this ongoing struggle, an ongoing battle we'll have with sin, and the Spirit of God's living in us, empowering us for that battle. Listen, the unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever here this morning or online, you don't have the Spirit of God. Your life will be defined by sin in rebellion against Him. John's not talking about the true child of God who's struggling against sin as part of their lifelong journey of sanctification. He's warning against those who are in open, flagrant rebellion against God. He's writing about an unsaved person who doesn't look for God to confess his sins. Rather, he's devoted to his own kingdom, which stands against God. Well, I'm almost out of time. I think I want to take one second. I want to illustrate this for you. Because the Bible has a couple of scenes that's so fascinating to me. And I offer these scenes, these pictures, not as pictures I completely understand, but I think pictures that the Bible gives us, truth that the Bible shows us to help us see this. One place, it comes from the prophet Zechariah. And and as Zechariah writes and he gives these pictures, sort of these heavenly pictures or these future pictures, it's these pictures of of either what's happening now that we can't fully see, it's sort of beyond our senses, or what will happen then when the veil is lifted and we will see physically what has been going on spiritually. The first is Zechariah 3. It's this picture of what happens at justification and this ongoing sanctification. Uh, uh, There's the the priest and and the accuser, which is Satan. The the accuser, he comes, and, and the priest you find is filthy, and the accuser is accusing him. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord, which I take to be Jesus, shows up, and he silences the accuser, and he takes the sin away, and he clothes the the one in righteousness. It's this great picture of what happens to us. Well, there's this other picture. Zechariah 14, it's a picture of the future to come when Jesus physically reigns. I told you, there are things we know about the future to come. There are things we're less clear about when the future comes. And there's this thing, Jesus is going to reign physically on earth on David's throne, as king. And there will be people living here on earth. And Zechariah 14 has this picture of people coming. They'll be be called by Jesus to Jerusalem to come and to worship. I'll 
fully understand all the things going on in that picture. But the veil comes down. We're going to see physically what we're experiencing spiritually. And, and, and it says this, that they'll come. And, and there at the throne are the, are the bells of the horses. And, the, and these bells have inscribed, Holy to the Lord on them. Do a little dictionary work, Bible dictionary work, and you find out those are bells that used to hang on the horses that went to war against him. If there ever was something unclean, it would have been those bells. And yet in the presence of Jesus, he takes what's unclean and is able to ascribe wholly to the Lord on them. The pots in the house, the common pots, the plain old ordinary, not special pots, those become bowls, holy at the altar. What is common becomes holy. That's our life. The other thing you see is you see rebellion for what it is in that picture. There will be people, and I can't imagine it, but there will be people that live on earth while Jesus reigns on the throne. There will be people that live on earth that say, I'm not coming to Jerusalem. I'm not going to worship you. And what happens, you can read it for yourself, Zechariah chapter 14. If you don't come, you're rebellious. If you don't worship, you're lawless. So no rain for you. Instead of rain, you get a plague. The flesh rotting off your bones kind of plague. You say, how can that be? How can there still be rebellion then? How can there be people that will still rebel against the... Jesus, who has appeared, how can there be those that refuse? In Revelation chapter 16, you get this picture. Jesus is on his way back. Chapter 16, the bowls of wrath get poured out just before he comes. Bowls of wrath. The angels open, take these bowls, and they begin to pour them out. Harmful, painful sores. The sea's going to turn to blood. The river's going to become blood. Fire from heaven is going to scorch people. And the text says, fire from heaven's going to scorch people, and people still won't repent. They'll still shake their fist at God. So then the next bowl, the people, it'll cause them to start gnawing their own tongue. They'll chew their own tongues off. And even in that, they'll They'll keep cursing God. Then there'll be hailstones, 100 pounds each. They're like hail boulders, ice boulders from heaven landing on people. And they will keep cursing. And what it is, it's this physical picture, physical reality of the seriousness of that rebellion that right now we experience spiritually. The, the sin in our life is, is satanic rebellion against God. It is incompatible with a believer. And as children of God, we, we confess that. We abide in Him. We live in fellowship. We long for His return. 
listen, we want to help folks that are living out there in rebellion. We, we want to talk to them about our Father. We want to introduce them to His Son. Because they're like people having boulders hurled on them because of their rebellion, and yet they still curse God. This is the seriousness of sin. Our hope for the future helps us to pursue holiness in the present. Without new birth in Christ, it's impossible to live like new people. And this should both comfort us and humble us. Comforts us because we know sin in our lives will not win. Ultimately, it will not win. Christ has won. But it also humbles us because if not for Christ and his sacrifice, his atonement, his ministry seated right now at the right hand of the Father who makes us our advocate, who roots for us, none of that would be possible without him. Have you come to know the Son of God? Have you? Have you turned your life over to him? Have you trusted him for your eternal life? Have you trusted him for the sinfulness in your life so that you can be reconciled to God? If you haven't, I invite you to do that this morning. I invite you to come. Come, become a child of God, even in this moment. If you would, bow with me. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do. If there's anybody here this morning in this room or online and they don't know your son as their savior, Father, would you open their eyes? Would you, would you soften their heart? Would you help them to see so clearly their rebellion against you? And Father, in that very moment, would you Would you allow them to know your great love for them? That you love them. And that you sent your son for them. And Father, by faith, would they take hold of your gift of salvation. The gift of your grace. Father, for all of this this morning, would you kindle in us the desire to hope and to long for the return of your son Jesus, and that, and that would be purifying in our lives, and that, Father, we would feel more and more how incompatible sin is with who we are as your children. So, Father, our life would be marked by the righteousness of Jesus and not the sin of Satan. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.